Hi, this is Elena from Ukraine and Paweł from Turin, Poland. In the English language camp in Poland with our American teachers. That's awesome. This podcast was recorded at 12.32 p.m. Eastern Time on July 7th, 2023. Things might have changed by the time you hear it, but we will still be speaking English and playing games. That's great. Okay, here's the show. Wow, it's so wonderful to hear from you guys. I hope you're doing okay. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon. I cover politics. I'm Mara Lyason, national political correspondent. And NPR's Shannon Bond is here. Hey there, Shannon. Hey, thanks for having me. The government's ability to fight disinformation online has suffered a legal setback. Experts say it will have a chilling effect on communications between federal agencies and social media companies. Shannon, what's going on with this case? And as it stands, what exactly does this court ruling prevent the government from doing? Sure. So these are actually two cases that were brought by Republican attorneys general in Missouri and Louisiana. And the core accusation here is that the government is illegally colluding with social media companies to suppress protected free speech. And so this case centers on the social media companies' policies, you know, companies like Facebook and Twitter, against misleading and false claims about the COVID pandemic and vaccines, as well as about election integrity, and just how involved the government was like in shaping those policies and also in enforcing those policies. The claim is that, you know, the government really overreached, as these AGs see it, when it came to encouraging companies to take down or, or otherwise address posts that they were worried would, you know, contribute to vaccine hesitancy, um, you know, during the, during the height of COVID, or, you know, contribute to undermining democracy in terms of questioning the outcome of the, the 2020 election and, you know, questioning voting and all these issues that have become, you know, these huge public issues. And so, in this case, it's still ongoing, but it came before this, this federal judge in Louisiana who is a Trump appointee, and he has issued a temporary injunction while the case is going on that says the the government, you know, agencies like Health and Human Services, the Department of Justice, the CDC, as well as individual government officials can have basically no communication with social media companies about areas that they consider protected free speech. Um, and so it's a really, really sweeping ruling that has quite a lot of implications uh, for how the government can talk to these companies, you know, about a whole variety of topics, as you can imagine. Shannon, I have a question about this. Protected speech means that anyone can get up in the town square and say that vaccines cause your hair to fall out and your face to turn purple. But the question is, are these social media companies utilities, public utilities that can be regulated by the government, something like the airwaves were when we used to watch old-fashioned broadcast TV? Or are they private publishers that can do what they want and can be completely exempt from any kinds of communications with the government? Right. That is exa exactly the question. And that's actually kind of how we ended up with this lawsuit. So I think we've talked about before, you know, we certainly talked on this show and, and, and on NPR about these sort of long-running claims from Republicans that social media companies censor conservative voices. And they have tried to bring those claims to court before directly against the companies. But as you say, there are actually pretty strong First Amendment protections for social media companies, for Facebook and Twitter and Google. They can decide. You know, they're, they're 
they run these private platforms. It's not the public square. They are not the government. And so they have a lot of leeway to decide what kind of posts they allow and what they don't allow. And so those legal challenges to to come directly to the companies have failed. And so what's interesting about this case is the issue here is not necessarily that the companies themselves are setting these policies. The claim here is that the, the U.S. government has been too involved and is that then in some ways the, the, the government has turned the companies into sort of an arm of the government in terms of suppressing speech. And that's where you get this claim you know, that, that it actually is a violation of the First Amendment in terms of the government regulating speech. Yeah, I found myself um, hearing this and reading about this, Shannon, and having questions almost about you know, what rights, and maybe this is the wrong question, but like, does the government or do government officials have rights to communicate with companies? Because, I mean, the issue here wasn't that they were actually restricting speech on the part of the social media companies, if I understand it. It was that they were communicating with them in a way that uh, the plaintiffs and, and the judge found objectionable. Am, am I getting that right? That's right. So so sort of to step back, it's actually a little hard to, to really understand exactly how these relationships work. There's not a lot of transparency into it. Um, but what we do know is that, you know, essentially with the rise of social media, with the rise of the Internet, um, you know, it has become important for government agencies to be in touch, you know, with these communication channels about, you know, things like child sex abuse material that may be spreading, uh, you know, criminal activity, terrorism. And so that's sort of the origins of where you started to see, you know, over, over the past decade even, Agencies like the FBI, you know, ha- starting to have regular meetings with social media companies talking about these issues. That has certainly escalated in recent years, you know, with both with the 2020 election, actually in the wake of the 2016 election and, and, you know, the concerns about Russian interference on social media, of course, in 2020. And then, of course, during the pandemic, when you had, you know, these sort of what were seen as these urgent threats, you know, to the to the public discourse that might cause real world harm. And so you saw you started to see you know, the various agencies, various government officials, you know, even President Biden at one point, um, when there were a lot of concerns around anti-vaccine content spreading on social media, you know, saying he felt the, the social media companies you know, weren't doing enough and, and needed to be doing more. And so that has all kind of been wrapped up together in these claims saying that is that that, that is too much, that, that that amounts to the government exerting pressure on the companies to take down this kind of content in a way that would violate the First Amendment. But but as you say, like there's kind of all sorts of different ways in which we can imagine the government interacting with these companies that as far as we see, we can we can tell from from the materials in this case, often do seem to fall short of this idea that they are directly ordering companies to take down posts. How is this different, Shannon, from the government calling up the New York Times and saying, if you publish this leaked document, we are lives will be lost overseas. In other words, a leaked document that exposes the names and phone numbers of U.S. spies in Russia and China. I mean, how is that any different than this? Right. I mean, we know, you know, in journalism, I mean, this is absolutely a thing that, you know, insensitive beats where 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 you may, you know, there are those kind of conversations that happen. And look, I mean, I think we shouldn't set aside the idea that there are actual real concerns here. You know, there is this question of just, you know, when, when is sort of using the bully pulpit of the White House or, you know, the, the Surgeon General, when does that extend too far? When does that amount to undue pressure? 
And, you know, I think the, the, the most kind of egregious cases we've seen have actually been outside this country. You know, in places like Turkey um, and India, we have seen governments sort of use the levers of, of social media, you know, whether it's the threat of regulation or really just sort of direct orders to the companies to take down posts in a way that, you know, muzzles the opposition, um, you know, to the idea of deplatforming critics, you know, and those are real threats. I mean, there is a question here about, like, how close is too close? Do we really want government officials, you know, being very involved in, you know, kind of creating the policies or, or you know, telling, telling companies how to enforce policies? The question is, you know, does the evidence in this case amount to that? And I think there's a lot of debate about that. And many of the experts that I spoke to, you know, legal experts who have looked at this, you know, say you know, this is a really sweeping order um, based on the evidence in the case. You know, it's and 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 there there are concerns that it's going to have really a chilling effect more broadly on the ability of government agencies to communicate with these platforms when it comes to really key issues like public health or, or national security. And I should say there's a carve out in this um, this injunction so that agencies are supposed to be able to talk to social media platforms about, you know, issues of criminal activity, national security, you know, foreign election interference. But, you know, the reality is, like, I think if you are, you know, an official, you, you're, you're facing this ruling, you're going to be really wary now about, like, what you're going to say. And we've already seen this happen. I mean, the Washington Post reported this week that the State Department has canceled its regular weekly meeting that it holds with Facebook officials about, you know, 2024 election preparedness and hacking threats. And so I think we're already seeing, you know, that that chilling effect that many of the experts I spoke with are concerned about. Shannon, I've got so many more questions about this. This is so fascinating. First, we've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, don't miss our latest bonus episode. It's a conversation about covering the trial of former President Trump and what that looks like behind the scenes. A friend of mine who worked at the Associated Press came in to the courtroom and said, Carrie, step to it. Michael Cohen has flipped on Trump. Wow. That's the kind of world we live in now. You know, so many legal stories are happening all at the same time. It's hard to keep track of everything. It's all in our latest bonus episode for NPR Politics Podcast Plus listeners whose support helps make this show possible. And we're back. Shannon and Mara, a question I have for both of you. You know, we're thinking about this right now in the context of things like COVID and in, you know, with the Biden administration in charge. Can't help but wonder, and you know, you sort of alluded, Shannon, to the bigger picture questions um, that that this issue raises, the, the comparisons to other countries with authoritarian leaders. I can't help but wonder if in the future a different administration were in charge, if some of these questions might look different. I mean, what are the implications going forward for for this case? Well, how about if Ron DeSantis doesn't like what Disney does on its social media platforms? I mean, there's no doubt that this is a shoe is on the other foot kind of situation. Conservatives believe that media in general and social media in particular censor their views. It's hard to, to see the evidence for that, especially now that Elon Musk owns Twitter. But there's no doubt that that is a strongly held view among conservatives, that any kind of government intervention communication is going to hurt their points of view. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and, and it does show you just how sort of politicized and polarized this question of, of you know, the, what used to be a very dry area of like social media content moderation has become. And, you know, we, we actually have seen these concerns, you know, when the shoe has been on the other foot. 
when Donald Trump was president during sort of the the beginning of the early stages of the pandemic, during the George Floyd protests, um, the this is at the point where the social media companies were starting to actually institute a lot of new rules and, and doing things like labeling posts, right, saying things were making claims were misleading or, or putting warnings. And when Twitter did that for the first time to a post of Donald Trump, um, he threatened to take away important uh, legal protections that the platforms had. And people were really outraged about that. There was the idea of, you know, sort of using regulation as a cudgel, this idea, it's also known as jawboning, right, where the government is sort of exerting, using its its platform to exert pressure on a company to carry out a certain policy. And so, you know, I think there there are those concerns. And I just think it shows you it's really, really hard to have a conversation about any of these topics without it immediately devolving into this partisan battle. Um, Because as Mara says, conservatives have long claimed that they are censored in the media and particularly on social media. And then on the other side, you have, you know, Democrats who say that the social media companies are not going far enough in terms of policing what's on their platform and making sure they are not contributing to real world harm. I mean, how equipped are courts to even evaluate these claims, Shannon? It seems like some of them come down to questions about algorithms and technology, right? Yeah. And, and of course, you know, in, in say in this case, uh, you know, you look through the, the set of claims they're making and, you know, it's, it seems like a lot of, you know, borderline to bad examples of, of you know, that are targeting specifically conservative content. But of course, you know, those are the examples that are being chosen to boost the claims in this lawsuit. There's no sense that this gives us an overall picture of actually, you know, what kind of content is getting moderated on social media. And actually, we do know that it's not always the case that that conservative content is being targeted. I mean, you know, certainly from the January 6th committee report and from the testimony of folks who work inside these companies, we know that in many ways, the the platforms have kind of bent over backwards, you know, especially when it came to Donald Trump, to not enforcing rules that you know would have gotten other users banned or you know kicked off or or certainly at least limited. Um, you know, they gave him a lot of leeway. It took until after January sixth, right, for any of these platforms to kick Donald Trump off, despite him repeatedly breaking their rules. I mean, there was also a Twitter study back in twenty twenty one that found its algorithm boosted right leaning content more than left leaning content. If you're just reading this, you know, the briefs in this case, that's sort of not what's showing up here. And I think, again, it's showing that polarization of this of this issue of content moderation. What does all this mean as we head into the 2024 election cycle? I think there are concerns, certainly ahead of uh, 2022 in the midterms. You know, one of the lessons we had from 2020 and what happened, um, you know, with, with Donald Trump's false claims uh, that, you know, all kinds of false claims, everything from that, you know, mail-in ballots were somehow going to be more fraudulent to claiming, you know, that the election was stolen from him. There was a lot of concern, you know, that there would be a repeat. And you saw the social media companies, you know, try to set pretty clear rules and work quite closely, you know, with both governmental and non-governmental partners to try to understand what kind of narratives were being spread. How do we get out accurate information? And you know, so it's a lot of the just sort of basic mechanics that we've come to expect from social media companies when it comes to elections, things like making sure that people can get accurate information about where, when and where to vote. That is something that they work, you know, with you know, local secretary of state offices and and local election officials to do to make sure they have that information correct. And if they are barred now, if if those officials are barred from communicating with the social media companies, you kind of have to wonder what that's going to look like. You know, Mara, this case is about allegations of 
excessive government pressure on social media companies, right? But do you think this could have implications for for the regulation of other types of political speech? Because it seems like political speech, or at least the politicization of certain types of speech, is really at the heart of this. Well, this is a big victory for disinformation, I think. Couple that with AI and the general distrust of institutions, and I think it's one of the it's it's yet another thing, another trend that undermines democracy in America. So, Shannon, what happens next here? Uh, how is the government responding? First of all, well, the Biden administration, you know, has said it is going to appeal this ruling, and it's actually already filed a motion to to stay this injunction, so to to, to make sure this injunction wouldn't go into effect while that appeal happens. Um, but as we said, you know, we already see government agencies being very cautious and and backing off some of these communications, um, and and I think you know, while while this while it's all in this very you know undecided phase and we don't know what you know what's going to happen i imagine there's going to be a lot of caution i also say you know there has been a larger this is part of this larger backlash against the companies the against the tech companies for the kind of policies they have that have become increasingly muscular um you know around things like public health and vaccines and elections there's been a lot of backlash to that and we've started to see the companies, you know, even before this ruling, backing away from from some of these policies. So, for example, YouTube recently said it wasn't going to take down videos anymore, you know, that claimed the 2020 election was stolen. You know, Facebook has said it is no longer enforcing its policy, you know, against misleading or false claims about COVID and vaccines, you know, in 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 certain countries. And so, you know, I think there has already been a ton of public pressure on these policies. And I think the companies, you know, maybe that kind of gives them cover to 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 not be as aggressive. And we're actually also seeing them disinvest in, you know, the teams of people that they have to hire to look at what, what's being posted and decide whether it breaks the rules or not. So I think it's all pretty concerning heading into an election year. Shannon Bond, thank you so much for your reporting. Thanks for having me on to talk about this. And we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, it's time for Can't Let It Go. And we're back, and it's time to end the show like we do every week with Can't Let It Go. And we have a special guest, Miles Parks. Hey, Miles. Hi, Sarah. This is the part of the show, of course, where we talk about the things from the week that we just cannot stop talking about and thinking about, politics or otherwise. What have you got for us, Miles? Well, mine is otherwise, um, and we just had the 4th of July this week, and I don't know if you guys watched Joey Chestnut uh, demolish the competition for like the 15th year uh, in a row in the hot dog eating contest. He downed like 60 hot dogs on the 4th of July, and you're like, where are you going with this, Miles? This was like an extra impressive one, wasn't it? It was. Well, I mean, every time he does, it's impressive. He didn't set the world record. He set the world record a couple of years ago, but... Every 4th of July, when I watch this competition, I think back to one of the best journalism assignments I've ever had, which was to cover Joey Chestnut when he set the ice cream eating competition record back in 2014. I was a local newspaper reporter in Florida, and I went to the ice cream, I can't remember, it was like the World Ice Cream Fair or something, some sort of ice cream competition in Florida. And um, he, 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 he ate 15 pints of ice cream in six minutes, which... I watch a lot of sports, and I will say it was the most impressive thing. I've seen a no-hitter live. This was more impressive <laughs> in terms of human achievement. It, it was one of the craziest things I have 
ever seen. And I talked to him afterward, uh, and I was so curious. I was like, how does ice cream compare to hot dogs? He set chicken wing records. He set a bunch of eating competitions. He said ice cream was one of the hardest things he's ever eaten competitively because of the brain freeze. Like, brain freeze <sighs> sets on in, like, the first minute of eating this ice cream. And he said, like, he had to basically push through six straight minutes of brain freeze to eat these 15 pints, which oh, was just God. absolutely mind-boggling. And he didn't puke, which is, like, also extra impressive. Sometimes people do that. <laughs> I once won a White Castle eating contest at high school youth group because what? my family as a religious observance would fast on Wednesdays, like not eat for spiritual reasons. And I always hated that because I like eating. And I got to youth group starving and I was, and they had a they had a hamburger eating contest and it was like, yes, and I won. I beat like this giant, like six foot two guy in the Oh group. my God. Mm-hmm. This is how do you remember how many hamburgers you ate? It wasn't a lot. It was like maybe six because they're like those little <laughs> White Castle ones, you know? Yeah, the little ones. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. We should have an NPR eating contest at some point. I'm sure that's probably like against the rules. <laughs> in order to win, I'd have to come in so hangry, you know? Yeah, right. Uh, what do you have, Sarah? So mine is more political, but I just can't stop thinking about it. So this is mine. Um, the former mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, and his wife, who've been together a very long time, a couple of decades, I think. They have a couple of kids. They gave this very kind of sweet interview to the New York Times about their decision to do something that lots of us have done over the years, which is separate. And you know, I, I just thought it was kind of heartwarming in a way because they're so mature and so civilized. They've decided they, after a very, what sounded like a very rational conversation that this isn't right. And so they're going to sort of separate in place, date other people, move on with their lives. And, you know, I just think of how many times we've seen political couples go on stage together, usually the wife with a strained look on her face, you know, to try to smooth over something. And this is just two people who've like made a decision. It sounds like a very mature decision. And, um, you know, it's an unconventional one, but I wish them all the best. It was very, very revealing. And of course, they are public people. And it means that their separation is going to be viewed and more public than most people's. But I wonder if this will set the norm, a new standard for public officials separating and then divorcing. It might. Yeah, or maybe just more honesty and openness about what's really going on, because it is tricky for public figures to have private lives. Mara, what about you? What can't you let go? My can't let it go is about a backlash to the Barbie movie in Vietnam. Oh, yeah. In the Barbie movie, on which I am not an expert, (laughs) there appears to be a map that has a dotted line showing what China believes it owns of the South China Sea, and Vietnam doesn't consider that map legitimate. Didn't Warner Brothers kind of say it wasn't like a serious map? Like it was, they said it was sort of just like a scrawl. Like, didn't they kind of downplay that it was even... Nothing about territorial arguments is not serious. (laughs) True enough. Even in the Barbie movie. Even in a Barbie movie. And actually, an international tribunal at The Hague ruled in 2016 that China's map wasn't valid under international law. And what's so interesting to me about this is that big movie companies who want to show their movies in China, because there's a huge market there, bend over backwards not to offend uh, the Chinese government. This has happened before. Uh, You've seen 
American sports figures bite their tongue and um, refuse to criticize China for human rights transgressions and other things. But in this case, there was a backlash to that. Vietnam didn't like it, decided not to show the movie. And in the Philippines, they're also considering whether to ban Barbie for the same reason. So I put this under the heading of uh, Backlash to China. And Barbie at the center of global diplomacy. <laughs> yes, and Barbie is the center of global politics for the moment. Are you guys going to see the Barbie movie? Oh, yeah. Of course. I'm not. No? Is it because of the backlash, Mara? <laughs> this is like is you're putting your, your flag down, too? Oh, no, that's not why I'm not going to see the Barbie movie. I'm not going to see the Barbie movie because my daughter is now 22 years old and I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a daughter. I'm going to yeah. see it anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, that is a wrap for today. Our executive producer is Mithoni Muturi. Our editor is Eric McDaniel. Our producers are Elena Moore and Casey Morrell. Research and fact-checking by our intern, Lee Walden. Thanks to Krishnadev Kalamur and Lexi Shapital. I'm Sarah McCammon. I cover politics. I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And I'm Miles Parks. I cover voting. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. <laughs>